You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. You're listening to us on America's Web Radio. Today we have a great show for you guys. We're going to talk, as usual, about the failures of government-run healthcare and the benefits and virtues of free market medicine. And today I have one of my good friends who I've been working with for years and years now. Uh, we got to talking in the operating room the other day, and as commonly happens when we're working, uh, we start reminiscing about the VA healthcare system, which for me is ground zero as evidence for why we should never allow government-run healthcare uh, to take over our healthcare system in this country. And that's why all of you should be voting vigorously against Medicare for All. If that were to ever take place, uh, we'd be in big trouble. And we're going to share with you a little bit about what government-run health care looks like. Now, on this show, we promote free market medicine. And one of the most important things about the free market and about capitalism is what we call the discipline of failure. That means that if you implement a plan and it fails in the free market, you go out of business. There's a discipline of failure, meaning you are incentivized to create something that people like, something that works, and something that makes you successful so that you can grow and expand. And over time, this promotes good ideas and suppresses bad ideas. Well, in a government-run healthcare system and government-run everything, really, there is no discipline of failure. When you fail, you get promoted or you get ignored, and the solutions to their problems are never really effective. They're just designed to cover up the, the problem at that moment. And so by using examples of stories that we have experienced, I think it'll give you guys a little bit of a glimpse into what government-run healthcare would look like if we ever go down that path. Now, I grew up in a military family. My father was a career naval officer. He's actually buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors, and I'm very proud of him. And when I was uh, early in high school, he asked me uh, what I was going to do for a living when I grew up. And, of course, I told him professional soccer player. That, of course, didn't work out. <clears throat> but uh, I got into medicine, and he told me that I needed to start thinking about what I wanted to do. And, and he brought up some really good points. He said... Do you want to work indoors or outdoors? Do you want to work with your hands? Do you want to, um, how much vacation do you want to have? How much money do you want to make? And I just remember thinking like, wow, that is a lot to consider. And I'd given it absolutely no thought at the time. And the very first thing that came into my head was I don't want to work for the government. And the reason was growing up in a military family, you know, living on bases and going to the PX and going to military medicine, uh, I just knew how destructive and inefficient and just awful bureaucracy was, and I really wanted no part of it when I grew up. Um, and it just gave me a really early glimpse of of just how devastating uh, government policies can be, especially when you're implementing something as complex and, and important as healthcare. Um, I can remember one time uh, when I was uh, growing up, uh, I was in college still, and I was over 18, and I still, because I was still in college, I still uh, was able to get a military ID, and my father was in town, and we had to go down to get this ID, and we walked into the room, and <clears throat> there was uh, a soldier there who was processing these IDs, and he said to my father, 
uh, we need a letter from the chancellor. I went to UC Berkeley at the time, and I remember thinking, a letter from the chancellor? I mean, there's 30,000 undergrads at UC Berkeley. The chancellor has no idea who I am and would never write a letter like this. My father kind of just shushed me up. We walked into the next room, and he literally got out a piece of paper, put it in, and started typing on the typewriter, uh, to whom it may concern, Scott is still with us at UC Berkeley, and uh, you know we really miss him and can't wait for to see him at the next semester. And he pulls it out and he signs it, the Chancellor of UC Berkeley. We walked literally right into the next room, gave the guy the paper, and he gave me my ID. And my father told me one of the great lessons about bureaucracy is the rule of no blanks, meaning it doesn't matter what you put on the on the line, you just can't leave it blank. So anyway. Fast forward a couple of decades, and now here we are in medicine, and um, I've seen what government-run healthcare looks like at our VA systems, and it's important for us to all understand what this means, because right now they're trying to sell us this Medicare for all as if everybody's going to get free health care. And the fact is that's not going to happen. We're going to talk to you a little bit today about what it is going to look like, because we've seen it with our own eyes. And with me today is my good friend. We're going to call him Zeke. He still works at VA hospitals, so we kind of want to protect his identity. Of course, there's a potential for retaliation there, but he understands just how important it is to let all of you know uh, what we're up against. Um, Zeke, <clears throat> tell me a little bit about uh, yourself and um, how you've come to work at VA hospitals and see what's going on there. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Barber. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I've been working in and around the VAs for over 17 years now and uh, really just got uh, in-depth information on how, you know, the SPD works, the operating room and nursing staff, whatever. So SPD, explain that. Sterile processing department. It's where uh, the surgical trays go to get washed, cleaned, disinfected, sterilized, and ready uh, for the next surgery. And what do you do do in the hospital? What's your role? Um, Basically bringing in the trays uh, for surgeries. So uh, the equipment that doctors use, you bring in stuff. Yeah, so typically what happens is only at the VA, uh, we have to bring in two uh, two trays, duplicates of each tray. Uh, they have to be there 48 hours prior to the surgery. Uh, the reason being is typically because the sterile processing machines, their, their washers and their sterilizers don't work effectively. Uh, you'll have trays that are wet and or the uh, wrapping. There's a blue wrapper that goes around the trays with uh, sterile strip tape, you know, indicator tape, and uh, it'll be popped. You know, there'll be a hole in it, so then that tray can't be used. So just to kind of give you guys a feel for what's going on, as an orthopedic surgeon, I have a patient that comes in. Let's say they have a broken leg. Uh, they fractured their tibia, and I need to fix it with a, um, with a nail. So I have to figure out what company I want to use. So I'll call Chris. I, you know, I have most of my reps that sell me all the different equipment I use for the various surgeries I do. I'll send them a text, and I'll say, you know, hey, I got this case. Let's do it on Tuesday. And then Chris is responsible, or Zeke, I should say, is responsible for uh, bringing in the equipment for me to use uh, in the operating room. And, of course, that equipment has to be sterilized, and then we put it on the back table. And that's what this SPD is, the sterile processing department. So when we go to the VA, how is this different than going to other yeah. facilities? So it's it's different in a couple ways. Number one, like I was telling you earlier, you have to bring duplicate trays. Uh, you have to bring them 48 hours ahead of time. No other hospital does that. Uh, and again, it's mainly due to the, the sterile processing um, equipment that they have, uh, and also some of the staff. They don't take the trays out, or they take them out too early. You got a wet tray. Um, also, just trying to find trays. You know, they have their own trays that are purchased. Uh, I'm not allowed to inventory those trays because they belong to the VA. 
but nobody from the VA can inventory those trays either. So you have these bought trays that are, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars sometimes sitting there missing a screwdriver, missing a drill, missing K-wires. And the sad part is, is they come up, the doctor says, hey, I can't use this tray. It's missing items. It goes back down, and it comes right back up the next week or week after looking identical, if not worse. So the real frustration here is because there's no discipline of failure at a VA hospital or ostensibly any government-run hospital that you see in socialized medicine in other countries, there's, you know, there's no real potential for these employees to be fired. I mean, if they uh, do a poor job or whatever, nothing ever happens to them. And in many cases, they get promoted to get them out of critical duties. And as an outside vendor, Zeke here is responsible to me. I'm counting on him to uh, bring me uh, the equipment that I need. And uh, he has to work through these employees who just absolutely couldn't care less if these trays get processed appropriately. And so he's struggling to work through these people to make sure the trays get from, you know, him through the sterile processing and into the operating room where I where I use them. And I, I can just tell you when I when I used to work at VAs, thank God I haven't been in one for a very long time, but uh, when I used to work at VAs it was just standard practice that you would open up a tray and the most critical pieces of equipment would be missing. And then when you'd mention it to the employee, they shrugged their shoulders. They couldn't care less. And it just gets to be really frustrating and really demoralizing. And, you know, it's not to say that there aren't good people at a VA. There absolutely are. There's just like any place. It's just there's no accountability. And the, the bureaucracy has a way of protecting itself. And just let me give you a little example of this. Um, I've shared this story on this show before. I was uh, an intern, and we were working in a trauma situation. A patient had a broken pelvis, and we were putting this device on called uh, a a pelvic external fixator, which are these metal rods that go into your hip bones, and it helps us compress your pelvis um, when you've had bad injuries, and it helps to prevent bleeding, and it's potentially a life-saving procedure. So we're in the middle of this case. And we have this uh, assistant who's in the room, and she's fighting with the head surgeon. And the head surgeon is, you know, trying to basically save this patient's life. The nurse got frustrated with him and took the equipment and dropped it on the floor to contaminate it just to spite the doctor. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, we're in the middle of this, you know, case. This patient's life is on the line, and this woman just, like a child, drops the, the instruments on the floor. And, of course, the surgeon swore at her, which I would have as well. Um, And then at the end of the case, I'm thinking to myself, she's going to get in big trouble for what just happened. And actually what happened, the administrator came down and started talking to the two and and brought up to the surgeon, wait a second, did you swear at her? And he's like, well, yeah, I swore at her, but she dropped the stuff on on the ground. And the the administrator's like, well, this is just unacceptable. You You can't swear at her. Basically reprimanded the doctor. And the nurse got promoted to the head of the operating room. And the thinking was, by getting her out of the operating room, that's how they solved the problem. Because now she can't, you know, have problems with the doctors and drop equipment on the floor because she has a position in charge of the entire operating room that's basically away from the doctor. And this is how the bureaucracy thinks. There's just no solution that's actually based on the end consumer, right? And that's really what capitalism is, is the free exchange of goods and services for an agreed-upon price that's good for the buyer and it's good for the seller. But in the government-run healthcare system, there is no um, what we call discipline of failure. And as the bureaucracy grows, it tends to protect itself. 
Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you have uh, another example was uh, the head of sterile processing at one point. You know, you brought a tray and it's supposed to get washed and then put into the sterilizing oven. And uh, it was between cases. So just took it downstairs, gave it to sterile processors. And the next day they brought it back up. We opened it and it was just blood and, and bone from the previous case. The, pers- the head of sterile processing literally stared us in the eyes and said, you didn't tell me to wash it. And he was promoted up. Yeah, you see, I mean, you got dirty instruments from a previous case. <laughs> they need to go and get washed and sterilized for the next case. And they basically come back on the operating table. You open up the tray, and what you see is dirty equipment. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you would never see anywhere other than a VA hospital. And one of the shocking things about this, too, is... Every doctor knows this. Every doctor who's watching me has spent time working at a VA. We all have stories uh, like this. And one of the shocking things to me is I'm now in medicine, if you count my training, almost 30 years. And how is this still happening? How is this still going on? And how is it that every year we're teetering on the brink of socialized medicine with this Medicare for all? And the reason is they're lying to you all the time. Politicians, um, special moneyed interests, and we talk about it all the time on the the show. One of the great things about this government-run health care for um, a lot of the special interests like insurance companies, hospital systems, and device manufacturers is that they have access to, to money with no input from the doctor or patient. So they can they can just start selling their products and their services um, just by basically buying off people at the top of these hospital systems. And we see it time and time again. Um, I remember um, one time I've shared this story, too. It's one of the most uh, important ones and the most enlightening me, to me about how government bureaucracy works. Uh, I'm working in the emergency room, what we call the orthopedic emergency room. We used to refer to it as the pit. And, you know, patients would come in all day long with all kinds of orthopedic injuries, broken bones and dislocated joints and wounds and all kinds of things. And you spend your day uh, taking care of one patient, the next, you get through the whole day. And as you were getting to the end of the day, you know, quitting time was was probably five o'clock, six o'clock, something like that. And we kind of had an unwritten rule that was you didn't leave a dirty pit, meaning all of the patients that came in during the day had to be taken care of before the person who came on call at night took over. So it was just not cool to basically leave cases for the guy coming in or the girl coming in at night. And we used to say that don't ever leave your colleague a dirty pit. So there were days that were just so busy I could see at noon that – If I didn't keep working, there was no way I was going to be able to finish all the patients by 5 o'clock. And so I would often work through lunch, um, which is no big deal. I mean, that's what doctors do all the time. I mean, the work doesn't really fit around our schedule. We have to make our schedules fit around when patients need our care. At least that's the way it works in the free market. In the the government-run healthcare system, it's the opposite. And that's why it's so poor. But anyway, I'm working through these uh, through lunch, and my tech – works with me, Miguel. And uh, it was awesome. He didn't have to do that, but he was a good guy. We had a good relationship, and he, he also had a good heart. He want, he didn't want people waiting in the waiting room and suffering and in pain and all that kind of stuff. So we worked through lunch. I didn't think anything out of it. So I go back to work uh, the following two weeks, and I don't see Miguel. And then about two weeks later, he shows back up, and uh, I said, hey, Miguel, where have you been? And he goes, Remember the other day when uh, I worked with you for through lunch? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I got suspended 
for not taking my union break. And I just started laughing. And I was like, no, really, where have you been? And he's like, I'm not kidding you. I got suspended because I worked through lunch with you. And I'm thinking to myself, how bizarre and how strange is a government-run bureaucracy? And the thing that's really most egregious about this is it's not rare and it's not unique. I mean, like I said, any doctor who's watching me right now or listening to us knows that this kind of stuff happens all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I can give you a prime example uh, of something similar, except the opposite side of the spectrum, which is, uh, you know, having a late case at the VA. Well, first off, Dr. Barber, how many cases can you typically do in a day? Yeah, we used to call it, you get the morning case and the afternoon case. <laughs> so if, you're after, if your morning case bleeds into your afternoon case, sometimes you're not getting started on that second case till God, five. Yeah. And there's, there was more than one occasion where you know, it's a holiday weekend coming up, Thursday night. They have off Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever. Yep. And uh, all of a sudden, the last patient was fed. Yep. And you had the older nurses, and they were the ones that kind of knew how to work the system and how to get around things. And, and when they said they didn't want to stay late, they didn't stay late. So the, what, he, what he's talking about is the bureaucracy knows how to protect itself, which basically means – when we have shift changes, you know, usually the shift change would be about 3 o'clock, which means that all work stopped at 1 o'clock because nobody could take the risk that if they were still working, if they started something at 1 o'clock, that that work may bleed over into 3.10 and make it so that they weren't in their car on their way home exactly at 3 o'clock. And so they used to shut it down. And then the people coming on to work, coming on shift, they could never just go right to work. They had to get their coffee and you know, go around and socialize and all that kind of stuff. So to people like us, the doctors who were, we used to call it the difference between the clock-driven employee and the work-driven employee. The doctors, we go to bed when the work's done, and the employees just got to make it to the end of their shift. And there's no consequence for not doing your job. Um, and so, you know, we knew that there was really no work that's going to be done between one and five. And if, you know, I'm looking at and figuring out what I have to do and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to get into bed till like two in the morning if I don't get this stuff moving. And so I would constantly be doing things and, and, and other doctors to move this along. And yet you're fighting with other employees who are doing things to slow it down. And one of the classic things is obviously a patient who's going to have surgery is not supposed to have any food eight hours before their surgery. So one of the best ways to make a case not go is to feed the patient. And then when, when it comes up, like, what do you feed this patient for? They're getting ready to surgery. You say, Oops, my bad. Um, but it used to happen all the time um, at the VA. Yep. And uh, it was almost like it was kind of, uh, you know, sterile instruments, check, <clears throat> got, got, you know, OR time, check, got all this stuff, check. Do we block the patient from getting fed by by somebody who doesn't want the case to go check. I mean, it was so stupid, these types of things that you had to uh, consider when you were running the show uh, at a VA hospital. And in the end, you know, a doctor is still responsible for the well-being of the patient, which is one of the other things that has always frustrated me about government-run healthcare. is it tries to take a lot of the decision-making um, and, and – um, control away from the doctor and put it in the hands of the bureaucracy. But if anything goes wrong with the patient, it's still the responsibility of the doctor. And that's one of the reasons that doctors tend to be like, you know what, I'm not even going to get involved in this. And the victims of this are the patients. They're getting, you know, less good care. They're getting, um, in many cases, you know, terrible care or no care. 
all because of the way this bureaucracy is set up. And, you know, one of the favorite things, uh, stories you've told me is the uh, time that the air conditioning unit went out at the VA and the the uh, workers refused to work on a Friday. Right. It was a steam pipe. And uh, it was in the central core, yeah. And uh, I think it was on a Friday night. And it was shift change. It's funny you were talking about the shifts, how they change, because uh, nothing ever starts on time there. But... Uh, the the shift when they left never told the shift that was incoming that hey an alarm went off steam pipe, so Monday morning comes around all cases are canceled and I think the I think the VA had like eight rooms and typically only three or four would run, so that's a waste of money there. But everything was canceled for the next week or so. The entire central core and the central core for people that don't know is where some of the pre sterilized instruments they come in uh, boxes or or wrappings. They're already sterile. They're, they're uh, even like your implants, your total knee implants. They estimated the damage was about thirteen million to thirty million dollars. Never made the newspapers though. That at least that I ever saw. But it was a substantial amount of damage, and it was just commonplace. I mean, you have waste like there's no tomorrow at the VA. Yeah. So you know, in a free market system like I'm running right now, and I, you know, I would just say. I have a really good perspective on this right now because I've worked in complete government-run healthcare. I've worked in kind of a mesh between government-run healthcare and free market medicine. And now, thank God, I have almost 100% free market medicine. And I can tell you that the things that I focus on to run my practice um, are very geared towards taking care of the patient and making sure that things are done appropriately and efficiently. And, you know, I work under the um, edict of the discipline of failure, meaning if I don't provide a good service to my patients, they're going to go away and I go out of business. And that's how it should be because it forces me to work on things that are important to my patients and do uh, provide good service and good care. And I'm con- and this stuff is not easy. Uh, things like the VA don't have this issue. And I, I, what he's talking about is in the VA uh, sterile area. There's a lot of uh, temperature sensitive equipment, um, tissues, and and all kinds of things that are very important. And what happened was the power went out on a Friday. Well, the workmen that were coming in that were supposed to fix it decided ah they didn't want to work late on Friday and they didn't want to do it on the weekend, so they just let it get hot in the summer in a, in uh, this city um, over the weekend, and all of this stuff was destroyed. Thirteen to thirty million dollars worth of Equipment, And what happens? Nothing. They just, it's taxpayer money, so who cares? Uh, They try to get more money to replace uh, the things they can. And if there's things that can't be replaced, like, okay, well, we just won't deliver that care. And that's, you know, all of this lack of attention to detail and lack of concern uh, for these issues eventually shows up in the waiting room because as a doctor when i used to go and and go into clinic where we'd see patients we knew we had very limited or time and limited equipment so we would see you know maybe a hundred patients in a in a day and we knew that we could only operate on a couple of them so we would have to pick the ones that had the right kind of injury meaning we had the equipment to take care of it and all of the other ones we would send to physical therapy and i remember it was a really tough experience for me because a lot of these vets needed care and they wanted care and they were looking to us for care and I just couldn't offer it because I didn't have OR time, I didn't have equipment and um, what we used to do to try and avoid it, our rotations at that time were two months. So we would say, you know what the plan is, is uh, we're going to send you to physical therapy for two months and when you come back we'll uh, see how you're doing. The reason that we would do that 
is because in two months I was going to be gone and the next person coming on could, you know, start over with the patient and be like, oh, well, I just met you and I wouldn't have to face them. And I hated it. And I just remember one time in particular, a vet looks at me and uh, I said, "Okay, well, we're going to send you to physical therapy for two months. And he goes, that's funny. That's what the other guy said. And it was like, so the person who was before me did the exact same thing I was doing. And I just remember thinking to myself, this is just no way to run a business. And let me just give you one example of how a free market healthcare works. Um, I'm very big about um, anything I use. If I have an appointment at 2 o'clock, I want to be seen at 2 o'clock. If I'm seen at 2.05, I don't really like that. And it, it affects me. And so I spend a lot of time working on making sure that all of my patients uh, are seen when their appointment is. And that's not that easy because you can go out and say, hey, listen, everybody on my front desk staff, I want to make sure that all my patients are seen at the time that their appointment is, is scheduled for. So then in the week when we have a meeting to review, how did we do last week? And I find out that a bunch of people ended up waiting a long time. It turns out that what was happening was some patients were coming early for their appointment, and of course we took them right in, but then that made us busy for when patients came up for their actual appointment. And so we had to make an adjustment there, and that's what my point is, is that in order to provide good service and good um, care and, and, and make good products, it takes time, energy, and effort, and constant vigilance. And entities that are good at it, are prosperous and expand, and entities that are bad at it, they go out of business as they should. Just not government-run healthcare. And the issue is that the more power and the more control that the government has and the less options that, that patients have to go elsewhere, the worse the problem gets because the bureaucracy grows, uh, but the care for the patient gets less and less, and then the costs become exorbitant. And that's this other thing is... You know, they're always lying to us about how much money is saved in socialized medicine versus free market medicine. And it's ridiculous because, first of all, it's not. They basically, when they present the statistics to us, they just don't count all the money so they can get a number that's less. Um, And what you're getting for the money is is so much less. I mean, in a government-run socialized medicine setting, you may have a card in your pocket, but that doesn't necessarily equal care, right? Right. Um, And uh, what else you got in there? Well, you were talking about the standard of care. I mean, recently they had the uh, vet that was bit over 100 times at the retirement home uh, by ants. Um, You also uh, had had an issue where a patient was on the table for a surgery and they didn't have his blood type, and that did not turn out well. Yeah. I mean, these are just details, but when you're talking about life and death situations and healthcare, uh, the consequences for not paying attention to the details uh, can be catastrophic. And that is why, um, that is why it is so important for us to get the word out and also why I'm so stunned. I'm in medicine 30 years. I'm not the only person who knows this. Uh, and I just don't understand why there isn't more of a mass movement especially from the medical community, to, to stop this stuff. Um, I remember uh, when I first got to the VA, I was young and naive, and I was feeling good about being a doctor. I, I loved taking care of people. 
Um, you know, one of the things my father told me is, you know, find something that you love to do and make a living at it, and you will never be at work because when you're doing what you love, you're never working. And that's what I am. I mean, I am an orthopedic surgeon. I have uh, family and friends that will contact me on weekends and, and all this stuff, and they're always apologizing profusely for intruding on me. And I'm like, I love this stuff. I absolutely love taking care of patients. So anyway, I'm young, and uh, I'm just getting into it. I'm actually starting to acquire some skills, so I'm really excited to get out there and use my skills. And I show up at the VA, uh, not my first time at a VA, but um, certainly early in my career. And immediately I start noticing that a lot of the inefficiencies about what's going on is because people just refuse to do their job. And so my buddy, uh, my partner, who was also an orthopedic surgeon, we'd go two at a time at the VA, we started noticing that if we went and got the patient, we put him on the table, we did the operation, if during the case I needed anything, I would scrub out, I would go get it myself, because if I were to send for it, you know, people would be on their union breaks and nobody would show up and it would be an hour before I got a screwdriver or something. So I learned early on, just go get it yourself. I could go pick it up, take me 30 seconds, come back, scrub back in. I do the case. When I was done, I would take the patient, put them on the bed. I personally would wheel them to recovery, get them to the recovery room. I would then go back to the operating room, grab a mop clean the floor and do what we call turning over the room. I'd clean the bed, empty out all the garbage, and basically do what we call turn the room over and get it ready for the next patient. Then I would go up to the core. I would get the next patient, wheel them down, and uh, put them on the table and start the process over. And instead of doing the morning case and the afternoon case, we were probably getting like four or five cases done in a day, which was absolutely unheard of. And this went on for probably about three weeks. And then my partner and I get a call uh, that the head of the VA wants to see us. And <laughs> good. my partner and I are looking at each other and thinking, you know, we're high-fiving each other. We're feeling good about ourselves. I remember the ride up to the sixth floor in the elevator, and I'm thinking, you know, they'll probably give us medals, you know, maybe a bronze bust of me and him sitting in there in the front uh, of the VA. You know what I'm saying? It's like, because we're awesome. You know, we're yeah. helping people. We're making it work. Anyway, we go into the office, and guess what? That didn't happen. We did not get a medal. Uh, we did not even get a pat on the back. In fact, what we got was a reprimand and a threat. Uh, the head of the VA basically told us that if we did not cease and desist from up upending his system, that he would make sure that we did not get the fellowships that we wanted. And he basically was going to go out of his way to destroy our career. And I just remember sitting there, jaw open, like, how is this happening in in the world that I live in? You know, I'm young and naive, and I just can't believe that the person who runs the VA is not really concerned with patient care. What he was concerned about was not having any issues. And by us working, we were creating work for the people around us, and they simply couldn't have that. So they complained and all this kind of stuff. It eventually made it to the top, and they discovered that we were the problem, you know, because we were had the audacity to work and to actually do things that were in the best interests of patients. And I remember being so demoralized after that for the rest of the rotation, my partner and I, uh, we would come in in the morning, we'd let the medical students do everything. We would just lay in our beds and watch uh, the VA cable TV. I remember at the time Rudy was out. So uh, we basically would watch Rudy every day. And I remember one of the medical students came in and she was standing there and she had her little note card and I'm on one, one bed and my partner's on the other bed and we're laying there watching TV and they're presenting to the patients, you know, they're presenting all the patients to us and how everybody's doing. And 
She goes, uh, so is there anything else you need? And I go, yeah, can you put it on Channel 4? Rudy's about to come on. And I just remember thinking, um, what a waste and, and what a tragedy. Um, and I remember during those times, I vowed to myself I was never going to allow myself to work in a system like that. And I was going to do everything I can to end this system. Um, give me another one. I know Chris... Yeah, so Zeke. I, I will. I will tell you. Yeah, <laughs> Zeke sent me a bunch of stories that yeah. we wanted to talk about. Yeah, so I mean, I'll give you one. Give you one positive. I mean, all things aren't too aren't bad. Things are changing rather um, at the VA now that they are able to fire people instead of hiring up, 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 and out. Yeah. They're able to fire people, and it seems lately that the good people, the good eggs, are not tolerating because before you spoke up, you got beaten. Yeah, you, know, you got beaten down. Yeah, um, you disappeared. Um, and now, you know, they're, they're, it seems like they're able to get rid of uh, get rid of some of the uh, bad eggs, and at least uh, start to fix some of the problems that I've seen over the 16 years I've been there. Yeah. So, starting to add a little accountability, which has happened in recent years, has has definitely improved the system. As has the ability of veterans to not go to the VA and be able to go seek out other medical care. We're going to get into that a little bit more when we come back from this break. You're listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. We'll see you guys in a minute. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctors' Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and I have my guest today, Zeke. And we're talking about uh, negative stories from the VA because the Veterans Administration is the best example of government-run health care we have in this country, and it's a view into what socialized medicine is going to look if, God forbid, we ever uh, get it in this country. Uh, right now, it's staring us in the face in the under the name of Medicare for all, but make uh, no mistake, this is government-run healthcare socialized medicine at its absolute worst. And we've been sort of trying to get you guys to understand how this is negatively impacting our healthcare because there's no accountability, there's no discipline of failure. The bureaucracy works to grow and protect the bureaucracy, and really does nothing to care for patients. And one of the things that uh, make the bureaucracy so ineffective is that it it does not empower 
the doctor-patient relationship, and that's really where healthcare needs to be focused. Medicine is a very complicated endeavor, and to deliver great care uh, is difficult. It takes experience. It takes knowledge. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. And one of the only ways to hold doctors accountable, and when I say hold doctors accountable, I mean when I went to medical school, you could study enough to kind of pass the tests, or you could study to absolutely learn it. And when I got to medical school, I applied five times before I finally got accepted. I really coveted my position, and I felt the awesome responsibility of being a doctor. And so when I studied in medical school, I studied absolutely as hard as I could have. I I think back on it sometimes. Sometimes I reminisce about maybe being young again, and then I think to myself, but then I'd have to go to medical school again, and that's out of the question. And it was really out of a sense of responsibility to my future patients to really learn the material well. Well, not everybody does that. And the more the government gets in and regulates medicine, the more it takes power away from doctors and patients and replaces them with lesser trained people, you get terrible health care until you get to the point where you get no health care, which is really what happens in a socialized medicine setting. I mean, they'll do the basic prescribing medicines, usually drugs that are put on a formulary by a pharmaceutical company that's basically paying off all the people that are in control of which medications show up on the uh, formulary. And then those medicines then get prescribed to patients with no real input from the doctors or the patients about other options because that's the only thing that's available and that's the that's the thing that what what I refer to as big medicine these corporations that make money off of the sale of goods and services to patients is to get that decision making away from the doctor and patient and get it into the hands of the bureaucracy and that way it's easier to sell your product because if I was to come out and say hey I've got this pill it's going to help you a little bit and it costs $1,000 a lot of people would be like you know if it's only going to give me a marginal improvement and it costs $1,000 I don't want it they don't want to have that what they want to do is say here's this pill it's free and they're still going to get their $1,000 for the pill. They just do it through taxpayer money, and then you don't see it as the point of service. And it is not free. And that is really the problem with free market medicine. I mean, sorry, the problem with government-run medicine is that there's no accountability, whereas free market medicine, there's nothing but accountability. And it forces doctors to keep their game going. Um, meaning I can't just be satisfied with learning how to do a total joint replacement. When I first started doing total hips, my incision was this long. Everybody's was. But I used to think, as other doctors did as well, if I could do an incision this big, it would be better. How do I do that? I had to constantly work on getting better, smaller incisions, less pain, earlier return to recovery, because I wanted to keep earning my patients. And the competitive marketplace out there promoted this this constant work towards making yourself better. Well, that doesn't happen in a government-run system. You deliver the same thing all the time. There's really no benefit to making smaller incisions, less pain, because there's no discipline of failure. The person is an employee. They come to work. They do their shift. They usually get beaten down by the bureaucracy, which means they... uh, are told what they have to do. If you yell at a nurse in the operating room because she dropped something on the floor, you get punished. And so the doctor 
tends to recoil. And after a while, it's just like, you know what, why even bother? And again, the patient suffers. You've seen some of this up close with your own eyes, Chris. Yeah, I'll, I'll start off with one of the odd things that happens at the VA is they have a tiered system for the for the vendors. And I, I can't remember the formulation is, but basically if you are uh, you know uh, own a company, you're a disabled vet, minority status, uh, just go down the ticker tape of everything possible you could possibly be. There's these companies that are mediaries. So if your company doesn't have uh, a minority or someone that's in, a, a former vet, on staff, you can hire this company, give them a cut, and then they go to the VA and present the price to them. I've never seen that before in a system outside of the VA. Uh, so that could mean potentially where the doctor may want a product because it's specifically used for this patient. Like, it, you know, you're like, hey, this product was made for this patient. But you might not be able to use it because they don't have a disabled vet and they're not a preferred vendor. And they have a certain percentage of preferred vendors they have to use. So basically what you're saying is there's a bureaucratic influence on how goods and services are delivered in socialized medicine at the vet that has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not it's good for the patient, whether or not the patient even wants it. And it gets crazier after that. So, Dr. Barber, let's say there's a new product out and you want to try to use it and you have a case two days from now. Not a problem. Come come to my cadaver lab. We'll, We'll set it up and you will learn that product inside and out before you deal with that patient. We had a, a doctor from the VA go through that same process, fill out all the proper paperwork to make sure every all the T's were, were crossed, I's were dotted, and he gets written up and, and, and investigated, uh, both the rep and the doctor, for possibly having an a, um, inappropriate relationship or a, a possible gift giving, which is totally against the law. But mind you, what they're saying is you're not allowed to get trained on a product prior to use. Like, they had an issue with you being trained to use a product on a patient – where are you supposed to learn how to use it on? Yeah, and that, that's one of the important things people need to understand about medicine. You know, when I went to medical school, they taught me a lot. And then when I went to my residency, they taught me a lot more. But they didn't teach me everything. They taught me how to think. They taught me how to work through problems. They taught me a lot about what can go wrong. So how to, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. And I have grown as a surgeon. I'm a much better surgeon today than I was the day I got out of school. And a lot of that is because I had experience with patients with problems that I didn't know how to handle, that I had to learn about. I had to continue reading. Every doctor goes through this. I mean, more is learned in the field of medicine that wasn't available when you were in medical school or in residency. And so you have to constantly keep educating yourself on this very complex uh endeavor called medicine. I mean, it's really vast and it's really complicated. And one of the things that make it really impossible for a bureaucracy to work in healthcare is how complex healthcare is. I mean, a lot of people kind of have this idea that in medicine, there's a problem and then there's a solution. But that's not necessarily the case. You can have a person with a certain problem and 10 different doctors will have 10 different Uh, ways of dealing with that problem that are all correct. It kind of depends on the patient, their age, uh, and a lot of unique factors that really only doctors and patients are in a position to discern, to figure out, to know what's best. You cannot do it like a menu system. And that's what government bureaucracy tries to do is they try to make it like, like a cooking recipe. And I always will use the analogy you can have a meal cooked by the the chef Emeril, and it'll taste amazing. 
you can give me that recipe and let me cook it. It's not going to taste the same as Emerald. Well, why not? I used the same ingredients. They wrote it down and told me how to do it because there's nuance in everything. Medicine is like that. There's nuance in everything. And there's no real way for government bureaucracy to to be able to service all the different wants, needs, right. and desires of patients. And if you read uh, Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, they talk about the fact that in a free market, there's an infinite number of wants, needs, and desires for consumers that no one individual or group of individuals could possibly uh, attend to. But the free market can. The free market always knows what people want, how much of it they want. They know what the options are. And it always affords us the greatest opportunities, the highest number of choices at the lowest possible price. And it always promotes innovation because the marketplace is competitive. And we're always trying to find better ways to deliver our good or service to the consumers in a way that will get them to go tell their friends and have them come back to us. This never happens in a socialized medicine setting. And, you know, I remember being told that we have to have these rules in place, that there can't be kickbacks to doctors and things like that. And now that I've been working for 30 years in healthcare, there's only one way to do it, and that's allow uh, doctors to run businesses, to actually engage in business relationships, because it's the only way to keep us honest. So let's say you sell uh a joint replacement and you say hey doc i'm going to give you 500 bucks to uh put in my joint replacement a kickback it's currently against the law well i don't need that law to affect me because in the end i'm running a business which means i have to be able to be solvent and i have to deliver the best possible care to my patients so i'm not going to take a kickback to put in an inferior product into my patient only to have them not do well because that reflects on my reputation. It reflects on my business. And so I am constantly incentivized to do the best possible thing for my patient. And that does not mean necessarily taking the most expensive uh, piece of equipment or sometimes equipments that, that there, there's things that people will give me, uh, bone grafts, for example, that are super expensive. And they'll say, well, it's been shown to improve bone healing. Well, if I'm going to be putting it in a bone that never fails to heal anyway, what's the point of adding another super expensive product into that wound when it's going to heal without it? And this is what happens in bureaucracy, we've seen it, and I know you've seen that with your own eyes. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, I've seen uh, what is it? One of the popular amniotic grafts kind of uh, get get a little overused um, to the tune of I think it was um, got in the teens amount of patients, thirteen, fourteen patients or so. That uh, they got over thirty thousand, three hundred thousand dollars each of an amniotic graft in hopes of healing up their diabetic wounds. And you know, what diabetic wounds an uphill battle. Number one, because it's bad circulation. Also, number two. Patients aren't always the most compliant, um, but that when the rep is putting the uh, membrane on the wounds, that kind of crosses a line, at least for for the way I was trained, um, never, yeah. never to do that. So what he's talking about, there's a product that's derived from amniotic membrane. You know, when, when women give birth, there's an amniotic membrane, and uh, supposedly this amniotic membrane has stem cells or juvenile young cells that can differentiate into different structures. And... It's been shown to help with wound healing. And what happened was because there's no accountability, meaning uh, the, 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 the hospital doesn't really know what they're doing in terms of managing health care because they're not medically trained, uh, 
this product gets into the system and doctors will start using it uh, because there's no consequence to it. They don't have to pass the cost on to their patient. It gets buried in the bureaucracy of the hospital. The hospital doesn't care because if they lose money, who cares? It's not their money. It's government. Right, right. And so what happens is you have these uh, vendors and doctors and others that are, you know, basically doing um, nefarious things uh, for profit that's not necessarily in the best interest of their patients. And what I've learned over time that the best way to limit that, because humans are human, I mean, no matter what you look at, there's going to be corruption. And the best way to keep uh, people honest is through a free market, meaning if I deliver a good and service to you, there's a cost to that, and we need to have an open conversation about it and make these risk-benefit analyses to decide what we're going to do, and that's different for every patient. Right, there's right. not a one-size-fits-all um, scenario. And I, One of the classic ones, I remember having a, an 80-year-old lady who was a water skier, barefoot water skier at 80, oh, wow. and she tore her ACL. And uh, the insurance company... I know I'm talking about insurance company, but it's still the insurance company still is representative of government control because it's the government limiting competition. That's why there's only a few insurance companies that gives insurance companies so much power to control how we deliver our health care. So in this case, this is an example of government interference in health care. But I, I see this patient. I'm examining this patient. And yes, she's 80, but she hurt her knee barefoot water skiing and so she needed an acl uh, reconstruction and the insurance company would not allow me to do it they would only allow me to do a knee replacement well she didn't need a knee replacement she just needed an acl but they wouldn't oh, do it man. because the only thing they could see was that she was 80 and of course being the doctor and interacting with the patient and talking to the patient and examining the patient i could see that you know her 80 was better than i am now at you know 55 so i have to ask you though i mean VA horror stories, I think they're a dime a dozen at this point. But um, does it make it a little bit more sweeter when you walk out of that surgery 100% done and you know the outcome is going to be good, even though you've had, I don't know, maybe a drill bit break on you or, or a part of your instrumentation fell on the floor? I mean, as a surgeon, I can tell you that reproducibility is the thing. I was actually just having this conversation with a younger surgeon about I'm at this point in my career where I'm really content with the work I do because I have enough experience to know people are going to be okay. I remember when I first got out and you started operating on people and you have somebody come back with a little bit more swelling or a little more bruising or they can't feel something or whatever. And there was this underlying anxiety all the time, like, wow, I don't know if that's okay. I've never seen that before. And I think it's okay. And I, I used to lay in bed at night. And my wife would would be like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, I'm thinking about all these patients. And she goes, can't you just let it go? Shut and it I off, just was man. like, no, I cannot let it go. I think about I think about my patients all the time, even ones I've had a long time ago that had outcomes that, you know, were not great. Uh, and it still wears on me. And I always am trying to think to myself, is there anything I could do to make it better? Well, now I'm in a place in my career where I've had a lot of experience. And so I don't really have that um, I can see every case from beginning to end. I know all the potential complications. I've had all the complications, so if they happen, I already know what to do. So it's not it's not a, a big trauma to me to to work the problem. There's still, you know, obviously it, it tears you up if a patient doesn't have the desired outcome. Right, um, right. And and that's one of the toughest things I think about being a doctor. Is there's a great book 
I read when I was in a residency called House of God. It was written by a doctor. And basically, it just pointed out the fact that a lot of this stuff is in God's hands. You know what I mean? Right. You can do everything right. Uh, and sometimes things turn out great. Really had nothing to do with me. Uh, other times doesn't turn out great. Still didn't have anything to do with me. And so a lot of it is out of our hands. But fostering that relationship between doctors and patients is promoted by free market medicine in every way, shape, and form. Everything I do right now uh, for my practice is designed to deliver the best possible health care to my patients um, because they're going to go out and if things are great, it's going to be my name. If things are not great, it's still my name. And I'm able to see it from the inside. I know how hard we work to make sure that, you know, things happen the way they need to happen, that pain is controlled after surgery, that patients have access to information that they need, that patients have access to their medical records, that they can get handicap stickers. I mean, there's so many things that are important and integral to a patient's perception of their health care that have nothing to do with their actual illness or injury. Right, you know what I mean? Right. From a doctor's perspective, it's like, ah, oh, you got your handicap sticker, so what? But, you know, the surgery came out great. Well, in a free market system, I care because the patient may have the greatest surgery in the world, but they couldn't get their handicap sticker and they're angry about it. So they right. go on social media, oh, this was the worst place I ever was because but in a free market medicine, I mean, sorry, in a government-run socialized medicine, there is no complaint window. You know what I mean? There's nobody who's accountable. And so when you lose this accountability, um, it, it, then the quality goes out the window because there's no consequence for not delivering great quality. And I, I can give you another example. When I was – one of the things that the VA system is does to control costs and – um, is, you know, there's about 150 VA systems across the country, and they're usually associated with a hospital system and a residency program and medical school. So they have labor to service the, uh, to the, service the VA hospital that's relatively free. Well, what happens is because there's no real accountability, you're unsupervised. And I remember as a medical student and even as a resident, we loved working at the VA because we were able to practice our medicine with very little supervision and it was you know an opportunity to take what you've learned and and go and work on patients and get practical experience which is good for the doctor but not always necessarily great for the vet and one of the things that they would do is they would hire these second year internal medicine residents to run the emergency room at the VA yeah. so they're incompletely trained doctors you know they don't know everything and so they relied on the specialists a lot for injuries. So let's say you dislocated your shoulder. Um, in today's setting, if I'm on call, I get called, hey, I got a shoulder, it's dislocated. It goes in, it usually takes me, you know, 30 seconds to a minute to relocate it, and you're done. I do it in a very professional way. It's usually, you know, very minimal discomfort to the patient, and you're on your way. At the VA, you come to the hospital. You wait in the waiting room forever because they don't have enough people to process all the patients. Right. And then they take an x-ray of your shoulder, and they can't tell if it's dislocated or not because they can't read x-rays. <laughs> they can't read the x-rays. And because the right. hospital hires bureau bureaucrats to go punish doctors for swearing at nurses in the operating room but doesn't hire radiologists to read the x-rays. So what they do is they rely on the residents in orthopedics to come over and read their x-rays for them. And I sometimes might not be available because I'm operating. Right. And so the person's going to be sitting there with a dislocated shoulder for 12 hours. I finally get out. I come over. Nope, the shoulder's located. Nothing to do here. And they could go. Or, yep, it is 
not located, and now it's been out for so long, I can't get it located unless we take them to the operating room. And you just see how this happens all the time, and it was really, really frustrating for me. I used to hate it being on call at the VA because they couldn't read an, a basic x-ray. They couldn't read a normal ankle x-ray. They couldn't read a normal shoulder x-ray. So we were constantly getting called in the middle of the night and during the day and all this stuff to come down. And I remember on one particular night, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, I get called for a shoulder dislocation. And I'm just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And I'm and at the time, too, I'm thinking to myself, is it even dislocated? You know, you can't read a, an x-ray. So I get in my car. This is before digital stuff. So I had to drive 40 minutes to the hospital. I get to the hospital, and I go in, and the x-ray is normal. It's, the shoulder's not dislocated. And I'm just like, this is ridiculous. You know, you can't have a doctor that knows how to read this x-ray. And so I went up, and I said, where's the guy who called me? And they're like, oh, well, his shift ended, and he went home. So I said, where does he live? So I got this guy's address, and at whatever time it was in the morning, you know, 3.30 in the morning, I drive through this guy's house, and I start banging on his front door. And he opens up the door, and he's shocked to see me. And I was like, you and I are going to learn how to read shoulder x-rays right now. And I walked into his house with the x-rays, and I basically taught this guy how to read x-rays. But, you know, this kind of thing goes on in every single instance in a hospital. You know, there's an infinite number of interactions that go on at a VA hospital. And you might ask the question, well, why don't they just hire real Doctors, Why don't they just hire people to do this stuff? Well, because people like me, I don't want to work at a VA where there's no accountability and there's no discipline of failure. So they couldn't possibly pay me enough money to, to work at a place like that. Now, listen, I take care of vets all the time for free. You know yeah, you yeah. know me. I, I yeah. take care of all kinds of people for free, which is one of the other benefits of free market medicine is I always talk about I take care of patients and I run a business. I do two things. They're not necessarily related either because I will take care of my patients regardless of their ability to pay and, and all the rest of it. In fact, I never even know the money situation. I have people who run that, and right, I right. just take care of the patients, and I always have this thing to, that I say to my staff, if somebody gets in front of me, I'm going to take care of them. So, you know, if there's an issue there, you need to make sure that they don't <laughs> get in front of me. But, um, you know, the, the VA, they'll hire more more bureaucrats. They'll hire more administrators, but they won't hire doctors to just deliver basic care. Um, I remember when I got to the VA uh, early in my, I want to say it was my second year of residency, um, <clears throat> I go over to start my, um, you know, my first orthopedic residency and um, they tell me one of your duties is to sign charts and I went well that's weird I haven't even been here why would I have duties to sign charts for an hour so I go to the (laughs) medical records this is before electronic medical records right Right, so we're paper charts so I go into the paper charts and uh, they give me charts from people that discharged years ago that I never even saw but the rule is that wow. a doctor has to sign the chart. And this is how the VA thinks. So we used to sit there for an hour and sign the charts. Anyway, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed listening to us talk about our VA horror stories. Uh, we'll see you guys next time on the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. See you guys next time. Have a great week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.